0: You are listening to The Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demerco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region.
1: Hello everybody, I'm Mike King. This is Freight Buyers Club, which is uh, produced with the support of Dimerico Express Group and available on all podcast platforms. You can also find the full podcasts and a bunch of shorter video interviews with leaders in the world of freight and shipping on YouTube and on the thefreightbuyersclub.com, where you can also subscribe to every episode direct to your inbox. So enough of that, let's get on with this. In part two of this podcast, I'll be talking to Neil Johnson, who I guess we can call a trade and customs guru. He's also the co-founder of TNets, which manages some $200 billion of trade each year through its various customs services. I'll be asking him about the difficulties manufacturers and other shippers face when they diversify out of china and conversely why one u.s regulatory failure is prompting some shippers and buyers to move back to china but first up we're looking at the trans-pacific trade we're looking at union action at west coast port the latest macroeconomic trends and indicators and we'll also be having a chat about spot and contract rates to navigate this logistics and business world i'm Joined today by Judah Levine, Head of Research at newly NASDAQ-listed data and rate specialist, Freytos. Hello, Judah.
2: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: You're very welcome. Uh, And you're joined today, Judah, by one of the world's leading commentators on US supply chains. It's Jason Miller, the Interim Chairperson at the Department of Supply Chain Management at Michigan State University's Eli Broad College of Business. I just about managed to get it all out in one go. Hello, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Okay, guys. Uh, I want to look at what's going on in the US economy and what that means for global freight demand, as well as where we're still seeing some supply chain disruptions and risk a bit later. And we'll also look at some trends in Asia that are giving us some insight into what might happen later in the year. But first, Judah, what are spot freight rates telling us about demand and supply for container shipping on those key lanes into North America from Asia? Where are we now compared to, say, a year ago or or perhaps pre-pandemic?
2: Yeah, so on the Trans-Pacific, so on Asia, the U.S. West Coast, the rates right now are the latest rates um, as of yesterday are hovering just above $1,000 per forty-foot container. And this is data from our Fredos Baltic Index, which is, as you said, a spot rate data. So, rates are 94% lower than they were a year ago. And more remarkably, this is the lowest rate of just above $1,000 is the lowest rate since the FBX launched in, in 2016 for this lane. So, rates have declined significantly. They're not only lower than last year, but they're 21% lower than in 2019. So, really below pre pandemic net, uh, levels on this lane. To the East Coast, rates are at about $2,000 per container or $2,123 per forty-foot container, the, uh, the average for last week. And likewise, that's 88% lower than a year ago and 90% down from their peak and about 14% lower than 2019 as well. So rates have definitely come down very significantly as demand and, and volumes have continues to decline.
1: We'll have a look at what this means for the U.S. Trans-Pacific contracting season a little bit later, but just for a comparison's uh, purposes, Judah, Air cargo markets have been pulled in much the same way. Is this about more capacity than demand like most markets are, or is this simply slowing demand?
2: So if we talk about air, so again, I can reference the Fritos Air Index, and this shows that rates into the US are at about $3.28 per kilo. So that's 70% lower than a year ago. And that is still fairly elevated relative to pre pandemic as there are certain different dynamics in air where fuel costs are more significant and labor costs are more significant. But certainly on the air side, it's kind of a double whammy where you have a rebound in passenger capacity. So about 50% of air cargo generally flies in belly hold capacity of passenger jets. And you have falling demand at the same time. So volumes have continued to fall on the Trans-Pacific as well. In air cargo, there hasn't been a rebound there yet either. And it's coming at the same time that you have an increase of capacity as a passenger travel is starting to rebound. So carriers are trying to adjust this by reducing the amount of freighter capacity and capacity management in that sense. But we see rates continue to fall in here as well.
1: And we've also seen a few new entrants as well, Maersk in particular this week. Jason, and feel free to jump in here anytime, Judah, as well. What's your take on the U.S. economy at the moment? We've had people predicting that by now we'd be in the midst of recession, but seems consumer spending is still reasonably strong. The Fed's still trying to curb inflation with more rate hikes end of March. Where's this big slowdown gone? It seems to have evaporated. And what are people buying if they're not buying imported products from Asia, like Judah's just suggested?
3: Yeah. So, no, it's, it's funny. As Judah was talking, I was sitting here literally looking up what are the, you know, water and air, what are the commodities that we've seen decline the most? And I think it sort of says it all. It's like you look in air freight volumes from Asia, what's down the most from where we were? Computers, sweaters, phones, microphones, and loudspeakers, more clothing. And printer ink is an example. So it's folks drawing down on tech purchases. It's less clothing demand. On the water side, one word, furniture. Anything single family housing related, right, has been very much hit by this huge cool down of housing activity of roughly 30% from this time last year. The U.S. economy in general, we are in a freight recession for the trucking sector. We have been since the third quarter. Volumes are down a couple percent from where they were. A year ago at this time, that may not seem like much, but when you've also added three to four percent of more capacity and you have volumes drop two percent, you have this recipe for the sharp decline in spot truckload prices, very akin to what Judah was talking about on the ocean side. But overall, the economy is not showing what I call the true red flag indicators that a recession is imminent. Credit card delinquency rates are actually still below pre-COVID levels, albeit rising. Mortgage delinquency rates are actually falling still and are actually at the lowest levels since before the global financial crisis. Wage growth is still very robust. If you strip out the shelter component from inflation, inflation is actually right where the Fed would want it. It's just we've got this lagging shelter piece. And right now, in terms of what's doing well in the US economy, motor vehicles and parts are doing very well. Construction equipment, farm equipment, heavy machinery is doing well and everything associated with infrastructure. Concrete, cement, and things of that sort are doing very well. So in some ways, it's almost the opposite freight recession that we had in 2019, where that was very much an industrial pullback, but the consumer piece and the import piece stayed fairly strong. We did have some decline from Asia because everybody brought things in before the 2019 tariffs, but we're almost in an opposite situation. So Right now, barring some major shock, it does not look like the U.S. economy is going into a recession, uh, at least for a couple more quarters, if not may, again, have that soft landing we all want. So we've got a freight recession instead then? Yeah. But we've, we've had freight recessions without actual recessions, 2015, 2016, 2019, now 22, 23. And freight is, from a macroeconomic picture, a relatively small piece of GDP. That's why we can experience a recession, but the economy in general doesn't have one. And it's also a relatively small
1: input into inflation figures as well, which sometimes gets forgotten in the mix.
2: I would jump in and add a, uh, a couple of the things what Jason was saying, which I think is great. A couple of factors when we talk about a the freight recession, it doesn't necessarily align with what you're seeing in consumer spending if we uh, think about how significant a pull forward was in the first half of last year. So because uh, importers were trying to bring in as much inventory as possible because sales were so strong and because delays and disruptions were so significant. that A lot of retailers were just trying to bring in as much inventory as they could when they could because they had been stuck with, you know, with shortages of inventory earlier in the pandemic when congestion and delays became so significant. So really in the first half of last year was the pull forward of peak season. Now that peak season overshot consumer demand because consumer demand started shifting around May of last year. So part of what we're seeing now in in terms of the freight recession is that inventories were in surplus for a long time. And just last week, I think we're being this week, there were earnings called by Nike saying that they're still struggling with excess inventory. And if all those goods are already stateside, then that results in lower demand for freight and lower freight rates and, and everything else. It doesn't necessarily mean that consumers aren't buying and kind of running through that supply. So that's kind of another factor unique to freight. The other thing I wanted to say, which I think reflects what Jason was saying was that if you look at the transatlantic rates there are still about double, more than double what they were in 2019, they've come down by about 50% from their peak earlier in the year, which was about $8,000 per container, but this is a different type of goods mix, right? So when we talk about trans-pacific, it's really uh, a consumer goods. And as Jason said, the mix of what people are buying because buying patterns changed so much when people were stuck at home during the pandemic less bulky yeah. and, and things like that is having that big effect on the trans-pacific on the transatlantic it's a different mix of goods and actually demand is higher it's still higher than it was in 2019 even though it's been declining since about um i think about october of last year or something like that so right so that's another indication that it's possible for the uh, economy to be strong and to see trans-pacific demand go way down just because of all these different uh, factors that you have to uh, take into account
1: jason as you mentioned there we've had quite a few Financial reports from retailers, from manufacturers, they've talked about these high inventory levels, which is a lag from that early ordering season last year. People overordered essentially. How common is it and how big a factor is it, do you think, moving forward?
3: Yeah, It's going to differ by sector. The general merchandisers, Target, Walmart, Kohl's, they've done a very good job of right sizing their inventories. They've typically done it through a lot more discounting than we would expect where we still in the retail space have a lot of issues is building materials so home depot is sitting on far more inventory relative to sales than what they normally would and so they are the biggest player in that space Uh, they're the third largest importer behind walmart and then target and so building materials there's a lot of excess inventories when you look further upstream in that wholesale sector which is actually where nike is that's where adidas is Apparel wholesalers, Nike's taking, Judah mentioned it, they're taking 23% longer to turn inventory today than they were in 2019 at this time. Furniture wholesalers are sitting on too much inventory because of housing cooling, household appliances, you know, things like that, too much inventory, hardware, heating, plumbing, HVAC, too much inventory. So you can really feel that everything associated with single family housing. And the more I've tended to look at the data and break down the individual harmonized tariff codes, the more it becomes apparent that the TransPAC boom in 2021 and half of 22 was really primarily housing and then some electronics and clothing, but it really is tied so much to single family housing activity. And that's that piece that's down Whereas I've got it up in front of me now because Judah was mentioning that Europe, westbound transatlantic is still really strong, are the top gainers in terms of imports from Europe to the U.S. in 2022 versus 2019 that are coming by uh, container. Portland cement, gypsum, unglazed ceramic flags, electrical storage batteries, so things for EVs, salt, so things necessary for chemical production. And assortment of sort of other chemical products and things like that. So it's much more that industrial side of things, and especially the non-residential construction piece, which is still very strong right now in the U.S. And so that's why we just can't generalize eastbound transpacks down. That doesn't mean that westbound transatlantic is going to fall off a cliff in the same manner as we move into 23.
1: How does all this look if what I think you've been predicting, Jason, is that we see more rate increases from the Fed? How does this look for shippers, producers, or even people in the business of logistics? Are, are we going to see bankruptcies or are things not that bad? When does it all end? When are we looking at an upturn in that US economy? When might inflation be tamed? Anyone got a crystal ball?
3: If I had to make a prediction, those year-over-year comparisons are going to start looking really nice around June and July this year, just given the legs that we know exist. Single-family housing, I don't see any scenario where it's anything but a rough year this year, which doesn't speak well to TransPAC volumes, especially when you factor in the excess inventories that have been mentioned. I'm not too worried it is worried about the transatlantic piece because things like motor vehicles are still doing very well. There's still a tremendous backlog to be produced. Construction activity is going to keep going on the non-residential piece. We're building more warehouses. We're building more factories. We've got billions upon billions of dollars for roads and bridges and things of that sort. So I think this year is kind of going to be sort of a blah year from a market standpoint because capacity, let's say, on the trucking side isn't going to be exiting, I think, as rapidly as folks expect because carriers made record profits in twenty one. And actually, 22 wasn't that bad of a year because the first half was pretty darn good. The second half started to get rougher. So I think it's going to be sort of a blah year. But once the Fed is in a position to start lowering interest rates, maybe even by the end of this year, but certainly next year, that should spur some pickup on that front. And uh, Judah, have you
1: got any bets you want to place on the US economy or the global economy?
3: Yeah, I mean, as as
2: Jason said, it doesn't look like we're getting to the signs of, of recession. The different indicators have remained quite strong, even within uh, specifically to freight. If we look at National Retail Federation, they're still predicting that you know a rebound in volumes already, has already started in March with their predicting projections that came out earlier in the month. And we'll see if those um, play out or not. But predictions are for inventories to run down and this restock, restocking cycle to start already. You know, in Q two. Which would push volumes higher than 2019 levels. Taking that as an indication, and what we'll talk about contract rates a, a, a little later, there seems to be a lot of optimism in terms of people in the industry for this type of rebound, which would indicate that on the macroeconomic level, we're already on the way to recovery. Of course, uh, it remains to be seen.
1: Let's have a little look at supply chain disruption and risk. And if we may hang this on uh, quite an interesting indicators, the New York Federal Reserve has created a global supply chain pressure index during the COVID years. The latest reading of this concluded we're back to long-term trends. So does everything feel like it's back to pre-COVID normal to you both? Um, Jason, I, I think you're a little bit of a skeptic on this, aren't you?
3: No, I I work too much with sourcing managers. There's still a lot more bottlenecks out there than before COVID. The latest example was actually just yesterday. The Wall Street Journal was talking about the very steep shortage of electrical steel that you need for EV engines and things like that, to where right now some of the suppliers of that steel are quoting customers' 50-week lead times which is not what I would consider a non-bottleneck scenario when you're waiting a year to get the steel you need. There's still, we're having issues right now with getting enough cement to make enough concrete machinery, you know, Caterpillar, John Deere, and both of their quarterly earnings calls, their most recent ones said, we're still having a lot of supply chain glitches. The New York Fed's index is very much, I'm going to say a container spot price centric index. When you look at the statistics of how it's behaving, combined with some uh, PMI data that's been adjusted in questionable manners. So I just don't put much weight on that index. I put much more weight on data where the Census Bureau is asking manufacturers, are component shortages affecting your capacity utilization? To me, that's a much more natural way of asking the question. And the Census Bureau data says, yes, we're seeing improvement. It's uneven across sectors. But bottleneck issues are still over two times worse than what they were in 2019.
1: Judah, do you want to come in on that? Where are you seeing international, where are you seeing US supply chain bottlenecks or or is there labor bottleneck shortages of parts or components?
2: Yeah, so I, I think I, I'd agree with Jason that sometimes we can whether there are bottlenecks in transport and transportation with whether there are supply chain shortages bottlenecks. and bottlenecks. Jason talking about stories of different types of good that the supply chain bottleneck. If we talk about just the transport part, I think it is significantly improved, if not back to kind of pre-pandemic levels. So the big driver, or one of the big drivers of rate rates and delays, was this port congestion. Port congestion was because ocean carriers were moving uh, significant increases of capacity to where the demand was, but the port capacity can kind of dial up as, as quickly, and so that was a serious bottleneck, physical bottleneck that was leading to delays and higher prices. And for the most part, that's resolved. But so certainly on the West Coast, you no know, congestion in terms of ships waiting and things like that is it's completely back to normal. There's a little bit of residual sometimes in, in Houston or other ports on, on the East Coast, but for the most part, that shift of congestion from West Coast to East Coast has been resolved as well. There are still sometimes in rail turns, times of longer dwell times and longer congestion, even still from the West Coast. And I think just this week, I was uh, reading something about delays in containers moving through Chicago. So some of that, I think in rail is still an issue from time to time. But if we're talking about the transport part, that kind of bottlenecks and congestion and in Europe hubs as well is really on, on the way down. But as Jason said, supply chain is more than just the transportation part. It's also the sourcing part. And there have been so many different swings in terms of demand and the ability to source those that I'm sure there are examples where we're still not back to pre-identification. But on the transport side, those types of bottlenecks have for the most part, is all.
1: I'd just add to that, that the container schedule reliability index produced by Sea Intelligence, it is improving, but it's still not back to where customers would want it. One of the disruptions you mentioned in the West Coast there, Judah, where we've seen a few disruptions in the LA Long Beach complex and elsewhere on the West Coast, and it's related to these ongoing negotiations between port interests represented by the PMA and West Coast dock workers represented by the ILWU. That's still not resolved. And um, as I say, we're hearing about local productivity issues. How does this play out as we're looking at that Trans-Pacific contracting season? Does this have a, a bearing on where cargo will be contracted to be sent to by shippers, do you think?
2: Yeah, I definitely. So I think just last week, there was a report by the, as you said, by the PMA that union workers were no longer staggering their breaks, staggering lunch breaks So essentially there was an hour where the terminals were shut down. And I think that's not uncommon in previous contract negotiations where there are these kind of uh, smaller actions as the you know, as negotiations fall. So, all uh, right, that's certainly not, not resolved. I think also this week, the NRF among other shipper groups were asking for the White House to intervene again because there just hasn't been progress. And because of that, there's been a significant shift of volumes from the West Coast to the East Coast, the volumes overall are dropping, but much more significantly to the West Coast. I mean, there's been this type of shift. As that's happened, there's been more of the infrastructure needed that's been developed on the East Coast over the last year or so to accommodate that ship So it's certainly certainly possible that some of that shift will be residual, and that you'll see that in the contract negotiations as well. Contract negotiations, like kind of the bigger issue is the state of the spot market at the moment. So as we said, to the West Coast where rates are. Threatening to dip below a thousand dollars per container, that's pushing the contracting season later than it usually wraps up. As these contracts usually go from uh, these contracts run from May to May, so that's a complicating situation because obviously if the spot rate is extremely low, shippers are going to want to lock in a, a lower rate for their contracting season. But this isn't really a profitable rate for, for carriers who are also facing inflation. So that's kind of leading some tensions and complications.
1: Yeah, and I'll just mention there as well, there's some interesting legislation possibly coming in the US that would, would apply antitrust legislation to container lines, but I'll come back to that in future podcasts. Just finally, in terms of capacity Judah, what should shippers expect from carriers? I'm, I'm guessing we'll still see, we're still going to get more belly hole capacity coming in from airlines as passenger markets recover in places such as China. But for container lines, what are you expecting? More blank services, suspensions, a bit more disruption there?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So it's really interesting to compare the spot rate situation now to the spot rate situation in early 2020. So the early part of the pandemic, ocean volumes on Trans-Pacific really uh, decreased significantly. But if we look at the spot market, rates held about steady and were about even year on year with 2019. And the reason was because the OSHI carriers took broad actions in terms of managing capacity, lacking significant enough levels of capacity to match the level of demand and keep rates level. And we're not seeing that now, right? So we're seeing rates fall significantly. And this isn't just due to the falling demand, but also because carriers are opting to keep a little bit more capacity, some excess capacity in the market, which is letting our rates fall. What will be interesting to see, right? So on the one hand, I think carriers are hoping for a rebound that we've discussed earlier and are hoping that this is kind of short-term and are willing to be in something of a price work for now. On the other hand, if that doesn't materialize, then we'll... I think we will be likely to see a lot more aggressive blank sailing and kind a of move up capacity to get rates back on. One interesting thing, if we talk about the, the contracting market, as we said, rates are $1,000 to, to the West Coast and $2,000 to, to the East Coast, but that's well below what carriers are reportedly offering in contracted rates. And what seems to be the, the more or less consensus, or at least it was a few days ago, is that contract rates will settle somewhere around $1,500 per container. So, as I said, generally contract rates are below. The spot market rate, of discount to lock in that commitment to volumes over the course of the year. So the fact that expectations are that the contract rate will be higher than, than the spot market would mean one or two things, or, or both of them, depending how it plays out. One is that there's consensus that the spot market is going to rebound because of a rebound in, in demand, that a restocking cycle will start soon enough to push uh, demand up and, and rates up with it. Or that if that doesn't happen, that carriers are going to remove enough capacity to bring the spot market up to above the contract rate of $1,500 or so.
1: Now, no one wants that lowest rate then. Everyone's worried about whose cargo is getting rolled first.
2: Also true. Also true. That's kind of one of the features of the contract market, right? If there's big volatility in the spot market, then right, either shippers get rolled. Uh, because the spot has gone too high and if, if the rate goes, spot market goes too low, then shippers will go to the spot market and carriers don't have that reliability. So, so it's a problem.
1: Okay. Let's look ahead. Jason, I think you're probably a better judge of indexes. You're definitely harsher than me. I've always found one produced by Nomura quite useful. It's a, a forward-looking index for Asia exports. And it's been quite accurate in the past. Anyway, it plunged to its lowest level since 2009 in March despite China opening up after lockdowns, people are expecting a bit of a bounce there. Slightly perked up in April, but Nomura says it's probably going to bottom out in the second quarter at some point, meaning essentially that they're predicting a a recovery in the second half of the the year. So Jason, what do you think we should be expecting from the US economy or in terms of that US import demand? Is what Nomura is saying making sense to you later in this year or maybe in 2024? And just to throw in, rather a big question on the top of that as well. And how big a risk for any forecasts are banking collapses or economic contagion? We've seen a
3: few wobbles in March. And so first on the banking front, it does seem that things have stabilized fairly quickly on that front. I mean, we're already seeing the stock market behave in a very different manner. Um, I'm not a banking expert, but this is not 2008. We're not in a global financial crisis situation. So The fact that things seem to be holding up decently well and confidence is coming back, especially if you look at the commodity markets, those really took a hit. They're already rebounding. So my general sense is we don't have some type of broad contagion, GFC type of concern. I think we'll see for the general merchandisers, you'll see more of a traditional peak season this year, albeit it's going to be a cautious one. So I'm expecting that retailers have signaled to everybody they're going to be very cautious about their orders this year. So I think while we'll see more of the traditional seasonal pattern for your general merchandisers that will be more muted than normal. For your building material folks, I don't see them being, you know given where inventories are, given where housing is, I would expect volumes a little bit less than 2019 on that front. And again, I think a lot of caution. So I do think there'll be a more sort of traditional third quarter, you know, third quarter, early fourth quarter peak volume period than there was last year, where peak happened at Q2, kind of an unprecedented early arrival of everything. But I'm not looking for at least Asia to the US, either ocean or air, for it to be that great of a year because we're still over inventoried and there's a lot of caution out there. So, This is basic, I think 2023 is the hangover from the 2021 party is basically what we get to experience now. And hopefully 2024, it's the evening and we're recovered again type of thing. Judah, just for our listeners,
1: might not follow the freight markets as well as Jason does. So we normally have this container shipping peak season, generally in the third quarter. And then towards the end of the year, the fourth quarter, we have an air cargo peak season ahead of the holiday season, essentially. Will we this year, I guess, is the key question for both of those markets.
2: Yeah. So so again, I, I'd go back to what we're seeing in contract negotiations, then go back to the NRF projections, which still seem to say, you know, there's going to be some kind of rebound. We'll kind of go back to growth relative to 2019 benchmark versus obviously will be declines compared to last year, the year before. But on the other hand, there are a lot of wild cards. So it really depends on um, the inventory level that we've spoken about. And also in terms of uh, consumer behavior, you know, e- even if from the banking perspective, this has been kind of contained, if that results in consumer sentiment being depressed because of those kind of concerns. So that can also impact the level of spending. So I would say that overall there is optimism that as Jason said, we're going to go back to some kind of seasonality that will have a peak season increase in demand and volumes and, and rates along the lines of those typical months and timing. I think the degree that we're going to see is really still up in the air. So I don't think we're going to stay in the extremely low volume and rate environment that we're seeing right now for the rest of the year. I'd expect there'll be some seasonality, but the extent and strength of it, I think, are are still very much up in the air.
1: In a moment, I'll be speaking to Neil Johnson at TNET about customs regulations, sourcing opportunities and challenges in Asia and elsewhere if you're looking at alternatives to China. We'll also be talking about M&A activity and a bunch of other stuff. But for now, Judah Levine, Jason Miller, it's been a pleasure today. Thanks for joining me on the Freight Buyers Club.
2: Thank you. Thanks, me. Thank you.
0: This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with DeMurco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. Demerco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly... For Trans-Pacific Lanes, with 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India and Southeast Asia, DeMurco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to The Freight Buyers Club.
1: Welcome back to The Freight Buyers Club. We're now going to turn our minds to expected changes in trade flows and sourcing patterns. To do this, I'd like to welcome Neil Johnson, who's the co-founder and partner at TNets, a global customs and trade compliance specialist, which manages some $200 billion of trade each year through its various customs services. Uh, Essentially, Neil is a global expert on many of the challenges manufacturers and retailers are facing right now, both in the US and beyond. He's calling in today from Singapore. Hello, Neil.
4: Yeah, hi, Mike. Great to be talking to you today.
1: Thanks so much for coming on, Neil. We've heard on this podcast previously how container lines and logistics companies are now making serious plans for this shift in cargo away from China. This is related to post-COVID lockdowns, war in Ukraine, threats to Taiwan, changes in that geopolitical landscape. And of course, we've got higher U.S. tariffs going back to the Trump days. So producers really are now looking at at non-China alternatives. Can you explain a little bit about how moving production to a new location, let's say uh, South Asia or Southeast Asia, how does this add complexity to supply chain operations and also what advice would you give to a company looking to do this in terms of the challenges they will
4: face? Yeah, Mike, very relevant line of uh, inquiry. You know, we're dealing with with clients almost every day who are looking to diversify the geography of their supply locations. But I think it's important to to sort of, yes, acknowledge that there is a decoupling from China, but there's other things happening around the world, which is sort of driving all of this. So I think the big one that we've been dealing with, in fact, uh, in this region, Southeast Asia region for a while, is the changing demographics. So you've got a growing middle class emerging in various countries, You know, Indonesia, the middle class is going to be huge. They're going to have tremendous spending power. Now, yes, Indonesia is definitely going to benefit from the, the China sort of plus one or plus two or plus 12, whichever it is, strategy. But Indonesia in its own right needs additional investment in logistics. And that has been, it's been forthcoming, but it's been forthcoming very, very slowly. So there are new ports being built. The airport is getting some investment, but it's still not going to be sufficient to meet the needs of that, that growing sort of middle class and, and beyond. So in, Indonesia is the largest economy in Southeast Asia. And yes, it's going to benefit from the de- decoupling aspect. It needs more infrastructure. And that's right across the archipelago. And I think it's something that you'll probably f- be familiar with having lived there yourself, is that there is infrastructure, it's creaking, but then there's also the issues around that infrastructure. So just taking that particular country as as a case in point, and you can draw sort of parallels with the Philippines and Vietnam here, having the port infrastructure in place is one thing. Having government departments that have got the know-how to sort of smooth the way for businesses to flourish, being able to issue licenses, being able to get out of the way when infrastructure is going in there, when money is made available, rather than being sort of unnecessary gatekeeper. Those are critical things, and it's still something which is quite slow in coming around the region. And I think as far as the, the other reasons driving the diversification supply, you've also got more free trade agreements in place. So people are more willing to look at manufacturing or selling into certain markets. So yeah, the the China thing is very real. Mexico and Vietnam, I I think, are the two most immediate beneficiaries, perhaps Bangladesh with the garment trade to a lesser degree. But the decoupling from China is a very, very long-term project compared to the speed with which carriers can for example switch on and switch off services in order to for example replace a semiconductor plant that's been churning out products very very smoothly and consistently in china that's going to take three to five years to replace in even a well-developed economy such as singapore or malaysia so there are issues with the whole decoupling thing but there are other drivers beyond that decoupling, which are going to drive this diversification. And the carriers are coming. We're seeing flexing of shipping services. We're seeing more investment in freighter services, more investment in airlines around the region. So, so yeah, I think the physical part is probably the the easier part to deal with. I think that's been consistent over the years.
1: Neil, as you mentioned Indonesia there, yeah, I'll just give a little bit of background. I did live there for a long time. For people who aren't as familiar with Indonesia as we are, it's an amazing place, but it's, in terms of logistics, it's possibly one of the most challenging places in the world. You've got 18,000 islands, 6,000 that are inhabited. You've got a very young population, which makes it very attractive for people who are trying to find cheaper labor. And you've got this burgeoning middle class. You've got a total, total population of just under or just over 300 million, depending on which census you believe or which source. But the logistics has never really kept up. A quick geography lesson for anyone listening, but almost all of the, well, certainly a huge amount of the investment and the infrastructure is based on the island of Java. And Java itself is, has got over half of the population. So we're talking about a bigger population on one island than, you know, the whole of Russia, for example. And then you've got all these other islands. So a pan Indonesia logistics strategy becomes very, very difficult, never mind all the natural hazards that you have, like intermittent volcanoes erupting and that type of thing. And I, as you mentioned, the the investment in the infrastructure hasn't really kept pace, although uh, Jokowi, who's heading the government at the moment, has made some progress there. And we've seen investment in New Priok, which is sort of an extension of Tangier and Priok, which is the port outside Jakarta. And Surabaya, there's the second port that's also making some in investment. But it's a very interesting market, Indonesia, but we have other markets as well. We have India, India is obviously very attractive. We're seeing Foxconn and Apple going there. What sort of challenges do people face there, Neil?
4: Well, India is huge, of course. Again, suffers from the same or similar infrastructure challenges. India that there are tremendous logistics capabilities there. There are lots and lots of logistics professionals who've been honing their skills over the years. But again the issue is a somewhat opaque bureaucracy when it comes to issuing licenses both for imports and for exports. there are issues around getting permits for building approvals and then when you look at the physical infrastructure that they have to deal with, you know you've got ports and airports that were built in the last sort of 10 years that are already over capacity just for passengers and of course passenger airports are critical for the flow of air freight. 50% of air cargo travels in passenger bellies. So these are critical nodes which need further investment. Now, thankfully, I think under the Modi government, they've made some progress just in terms of determining what the priorities are. I was through Delhi just the other week, and it's a super impressive project that they have running there at Delhi Airport. But It's still years away from being fully complete just to where it should be to deal with the current traffic, both in terms of passenger and cargo. We're talking about a country which faces tremendous logistics challenges, again, a very young population, well-educated population, people who are willing to work hard, and a government which seems to want to attract business to India, which hasn't always felt To be the case in the past the inward investment schemes have floundered in the past basically because the government hasn't shown sufficient willingness to attract businesses in and keep them there
1: i think a lot in our industry a lot of attention is shown on vietnam and also mexico i could throw in there is that because particularly we'll stick with vietnam because you're based over in southeast asia vietnam has made like massive progress on these new ports and this investment Is this what separates Vietnam from Indonesia and India? Is it more welcoming to investors? Has it got the logistics in place? Has it got the bureaucracy in place to enable business rather than hinder it?
4: Yeah, in our experience, Mike, to some degree is the answer I would say to that. Certainly the infrastructure is getting built. It's pleasing to see the investment going into ports, into Haiphong and into Vongtao and into Ho Chi Minh. So from that point of view, from the the sort of physical infrastructure, it's happening. There is a tremendous interest from the government. Uh, We've seen the government at the top level is making the right noises from sort of our own little point of view in terms of customs. Vietnam didn't try to do what many countries have done around the region and reinvent the wheel. They went and got the Japanese customs system and had it translated into Vietnamese. And that's what they're using. And it's a perfectly adequate system for what they need. Where it starts to break down is some of the work that we're doing, for example, with helping clients get approvals for bringing plants and equipment in. The approvals to get product out, to get product on the road, to manage exports, those are much easier to come by. When you start building infrastructure and Dealing with the inputs that you need to get a a new plant off the ground, that's where clients are struggling. It's not a question of the government saying no, it's just a question of saying we don't know. So that's a lot of what we deal with. Once approvals are in place to build a new factory, for example, then it's a question of, okay, if I build in a free trade zone... Can I then sell locally? It depends on the product, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that is not second nature to the Vietnamese bureaucracy, but we see them progressing every time, you know, every time we we deal with these things, we see further progress being made, which is very, very encouraging.
1: Just on a general level, say from a, a US importer's perspective, are there any sort of generalizations or similarities between customs regimes outside of China? and why they don't work versus why doing business in China is very easy, just purely on that customs level.
4: Yeah. I mean, we don't have an operation in, in China. We have an operation in Hong Kong and obviously that works like clockwork. That's very, very straightforward with Hong Kong being a free port. China does have its challenges with customs. There is a lack of consistency from one metro to the next occasionally, which we have difficulties explaining to clients, but leaving that aside, Theoretically, all of this should just work because the WCO and the WTO, so the World Trade Organization, and the World Customs Organization, have been working extremely hard to sort of homogenize the processes that we're all supposed to go through, and indeed the tariff codes that we use, but it only goes so far. So it's the implementation which is often the challenge, and we still see... Some quite well-developed countries. I'm not going to mention any names, but- Please do. (laughs) But, you know, we still see non-tariff barriers being erected when you've worked so hard to attract businesses in through your FDI programs and all of that good stuff. And then we see the non-tariff barriers go up at the very local level. And that can be anything from excessive inspections all the way through to destructive testing and sort of everything in between and it's it really comes down to how these things are interpreted but the bottom line is that there is a global harmonized tariff down to six digits it's then for the countries to play around and and add you know anything from sort of two to to four to six to to beyond that exceptionally to come up with their own tariff codes so all of this in theory should should really work but in practice like i say when it comes down to the implementation Sometimes other interests, let's say, get involved. So any
1: true decoupling from China then, or supply diversification, if we want to put it like that, we're going to have to see some of these more harmonized rules implemented, are we? Or is it just going to get very difficult? There's going to be too many sticking points with customs, with operations, with some of these other countries.
4: Yeah, the death of China or or even even the sort of meltdown of US-China trade relations, I think is vastly overblown. But generally, I think companies are trying to diversify, trying to sort of uh, spread the risk, if you like, and that is definitely going to provide pain points. There are some very good organizations which we participate in, the Chambers of Commerce, for example, when there are various uh, country-to-country or country-to-region business groups, which can put pressure, but that the pressure only comes once the challenges are being faced on a day-to-day basis because the local customs organization will say, show me. And until you're actually there and, you know, and experiencing the delays on the ground or the lack of approvals being forthcoming, then there's nothing really for us to show. So it's a very expensive and very frustrating way of working, but those are the sort of pain points that, that we go through in every market. And no different to what we went through in China kind of twenty years ago. What we when I say we as a sort of collective business, I was I was based in Hong Kong then and dealing with transfers of, of technology of various levels into all over China. And yeah, we we're facing the, the exactly the same kind of issues that investors will face going into a Vietnam or a Philippines now. I just wanna Flip this slightly because you you mentioned the word frustrating there, and I was like, this must be
1: very frustrating for a US company who's listening to their politicians telling them they should be moving out of China. They should be thinking about these things, and some of them have, and then they've been tripped up by US regulations. And I'll just read this. Saw this actually in the Wall Street Journal late March that some of these companies who've moved production uh, are now moving. Some of these companies are now moving production back into China, and, and this is because, uh, just some background, U.S. legislators have let the, uh, the generalized system of preferences, which is commonly known as GSP, that they've let that expire in December 2020, so it's quite, quite some time ago now. And, and in practice, this has meant that more than 100 countries, including Thailand, Brazil, Indonesia, Cambodia, the Philippines, they've lost tariff-free access to the U.S. market across thousands of goods categories. GSP has expired in the past, but I think maybe it's been more of a shock to companies because I mentioned earlier, successive administrations have been encouraging them to move to these countries that have signed up for GSP or are eligible for GSP. Now, just with some perspective, this isn't huge amounts of business, but we're talking about 1% of US imports, but that's still $4 billion worth. So it seems really bizarre that tariffs are rising in countries that the US government is telling companies to move production to what's going on neil well
4: we talked about various governments around the world you know mostly around asia not really having a coherent strategy and i think that's a very good example of many that we could that we can think of from the more developed economies where there is a degree of you know lack of prioritization of the needs of businesses So yes, the GSP, you're quite right. GSP has been renewed by successive governments. The GSP covers a smaller range of products. It's not the entire tariff system, but it's things like items of luggage made from certain fabrics, for example. So those have been stuck. So if you're an importer in the US and you've been exhorted by your government, okay, we need to diversify your supply because we're having a trade war with China, and you've then moved off to Cambodia, for example, or Brazil, to use a different example, and then not seeing the GSP renewed, I mean, you're going to be extremely disappointed in your government. Now, what I would say is that I fully expect the GSP to be renewed. And I fully expect that those people who have suffered duties inbound into the US as a result will get a rebate. And that's typically what's happened in time gone by when these these kind of things have slipped. But still it's acted as a, a deterrent to sort of diversifying supply. No question about that. And it will have also driven some people out of business. There's no question. It must have done. So I think disappointing a black mark in the book for the US government, and this is something which is you know, this is a can which is regularly kicked down the road by the U.S. legislature. And for some reason, it got missed this time.
1: Well, hopefully that'll be resolved soon and those people will be refunded or on a backdated basis, as you say. If we may just pivot to a different subject, I know one of our discussions in the past that you've got a keen interest in M&A activity in our industry. Where are you seeing opportunities right now and who might take them? Are you expecting a lot of activity in Asia where you're based? For example, or by Asian companies, or maybe TNet is expanding. Please tell more.
4: Yeah, well, a little bit of the all of the above, I suppose. So let's just deal with the big picture. We saw, I think, a lot of businesses during COVID have demands placed on them. Those were then transmitted to their logistics partners, and their logistics partners then would have highlighted with you know with the urgency with which to roll out vaccines, for example, or protective gear. They would have found gaps in their networks. And so we've seen some infill over the period uh, where companies have gone and made you know strategic acquisitions, maybe in the healthcare space or maybe in the more general logistics space. And I'm thinking in terms of relatively smaller businesses, there's a few businesses in France, one in Denmark that have been particularly acquisitive. And I'm not talking about a DSV or a Maersk, but Nordic Transport Group, for example, They've been very acquisitive, so they bought a stack of businesses. There's a business in France, the name escapes me, but they've made 10 or 12 acquisitions in the last three or four years, all within the sort of Northern European area. So that's something of what we've seen, aside from the big clashes of the titans of DSV buying Palo Pina and Agility and Merck buying up LF, LF Logistics and so on and so forth. I mean, these are fascinating deals. But they're really sort of, it's like the planet smashing together for the rest of us. On the ground, there is still a huge degree of fragmentation in most logistics markets, and including those in which the big players operate. So it's very rare for any of them to have more than 5 or 6% of a particular market. And it's very much customer driven. So where we're seeing more activity taking place is perhaps in the mid to lower tiers. We are seeing people building out networks. So I'm very interested in what EV Cargo are doing, for example. So EV Cargo is out of an investment fund in Hong Kong. So they've been buying businesses in Northern Europe. They bought in Asia as well. So they look as though they're going to be the next one that gets on the radar when it comes to logistics procurement decisions. I'm sure that's their aim to be able to go into big clients and say, hey, we're also global. And we're seeing... Interest and activity also, again, from the Middle East. So both Abu Dhabi ports and the DP world have been acquiring logistics businesses. So that's another very, very interesting dynamic. They both had to pull their horns in during the, or just after the global financial crisis, because they made some maybe not so positive decisions leading up to that. But they seem to be back out on the acquisition trail. And that's great to see. Great to see that new investment going in. So we've seen DP world, for example, buy up feeder services businesses. That's a very important part of logistics, particularly if you're in Southeast Asia and you've got to distribute product into Singapore and beyond, you're not going to send a twenty thousand TU vessel to every little port. so feeder services play an absolutely critical role in this region and DP world has invested quite a lot there. From our own perspective, we're obviously a somewhat operating at somewhat uh, a lower level. Customs very, very rarely generates very much M&A interest, although Maersk bought KGH, which is a major European customs player, probably the largest independent customs player in Europe. And they also bought Bandegrift in the US, which is a big customs broker. So Maersk has invested in customs. We've also seen Cargo Wise, which is, you'll know, or, or WiseTech, sorry, i get the, the corporate name, the operator of Cargo Wise system, which seems to be the, the go-to freight management system for a lot of the global freight forwarders, they've actually bought customs brokers as well, possibly for access to clients, but also for access to technology. We're seeing Magaya on the acquisition trail. So almost wherever we look, Mike, there is still M and A activity. It slowed down in the US, no question about that, and I think. That almost had to happen, but we're still seeing deals every week. We just saw DSV acquiring, um, I think it was a semiconductor logistics specialist in the the Southwest of the US. It's still a very, very fertile market. So from our point of view, our interest is in customs. We're on the lookout for interesting customs businesses that want to be part of our sort of global story. There is no global customs intermediary. It might as well be us. We'll give it a good go and So we're on the lookout for businesses that want to be part of that. Good luck with that, Neil. I think
1: you're right. We will see a lot more consolidation continue right through this year. Just finally, you guys, uh, you've got a green customs initiative. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? It's not just cutting paper out of the supply chain. It's about smoothing operations and cutting emissions and fuel usage and, and transit
4: times. Please explain. It's important that we don't sort of overplay this, but yes, there is a need to take action around the world. We want to reduce our carbon footprint wherever we can, but we are probably more able to help our clients reduce their carbon footprints. So when we talk about green customs, it's really talking about how customs can do its bit to help, as you say, ensuring that truck idle times are minimized, that work is not duplicated. Yeah, and again, you know, back in the day, if you even 20 years ago, if you'd gone around the average freight forwarder's office, you would have seen half the Amazon rainforest. I don't think that's any, any secret. These days, most information is transmitted electronically, thankfully. Uh, we're not yet at the point where it's all sort of AI driven, and there's machines sort of talking to each other. There is still human intervention. But what we try to do is we try to make sure that we minimize the requirement to redo documents. We minimize the requirement to make corrections and amendments. We make sure that we have the declarations done ahead of time so that the truck doesn't have to sit there waiting for the cargo to be rolled out the terminal. We are very much part of a much smoother, much more efficient freight chain. and. That really helps the freight forwarders and their clients to minimise the carbon footprint.
1: Very interesting, Neil, and best of luck with that. Neil Johnson, co founder and partner at TNET. Thanks for joining me on the Freight Buyers
4: Club. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the Demurco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.